Yeah, so this talk is on doing advanced stuff with the ORM and how the ORM is structured. So, quick uh, thank you to my company, Eldarion, for not yelling at me for missing work to show up uh, here to talk to you guys. So, forward. Forward. So, like I said, this talk is 50% the architecture of the ORM, sort of the internals, stuff that's maybe not directly applicable to solving problems, and the other 50% is sort of taking this 50% of stuff that's not directly applicable and turning it into actual solutions to actual problems. So first part, ORM architecture. The current architecture of the ORM in Django originally came out of a, a branch called Query Set Refactor that was done by Malcolm Tredinik. And basically before this, the ORM was sort of a terrible mess of uh, a lot of raw string interpolation. It didn't necessarily do joins correctly. I think it would never ever do a left outer join, and so it could return results that were technically incorrect in scenarios where you had nullable things. And it was just generally inextensible and a real pain to work with. So Malcolm pretty much completely rewrote it, kept the API the same, and the internals were completely and utterly revamped so that it did these joins correctly and it gave us a base to work with so that we could add new features like aggregation and the F expressions and sort of everything else that was built on top of it since then is only possible because of this refactor. Forward. So the next refactoring that happened because of course we need more than one major refactoring was this past summer I did a uh, Google Summer of Code project to add multiple database support to Django and Pretty much, before this point, Django pretty much assumed that you had exactly one connection always ever. There were no public APIs, and there weren't even really private APIs for doing multiple database support. You could sort of hack it in, but it was a pain. And so basically what this project did is we pretty much ripped everything out and then put it back together. So a lot of it was, let's add a connection parameter to this internal method. Let's pass that connection down to the next method, and then that. So just sort of this big rabbit hole of we need to add extra parameters to everything to make it all work. And so nothing truly was changed about the architect. It's still basically the same architecture as Query Set Refactor provided for us, but it's better, I would say. So sort of the architecture. So the architecture of the ORM really starts at the public API. You define a model like that, and out comes the manager. And so the manager is sort of the bridge between the very uh, internal private APIs and the public API. So probably a lot of people here define a custom manager. That's sort of a, a well-defined operation. You want to add extra methods. You want to add convenience methods. You want to do something and expose it to the rest of your application. You sort of often put it on, on a manager. And sort of get query set is, uh, is the gateway to this whole rabbit hole that is the ORM. So every method on the manager pretty much just does you know, self.getQuerySet and passes the method onto the query set. And so when you want to do, so if you want to have, say, a manager that only returns articles that are published, you override getQuerySet and change it to super.getQuerySet.filter, pubdate is in the past, something like that. And so, so the next level of this rabbit hole is the query set. Uh, query sets are completely backend agnostic. They don't care if you're using Postgres, they don't care if you're using Oracle, and they don't care if someday we have Google App Engine support or Cassandra support or any other non-relational database support. They don't care if you're using one of those either. The, they only handle the operation of carrying around a query set and handling things like turning the results of iteration on a query set into objects, stuff like that. 
And so it turns, when you call query set.filter, it turns that into a series of internal calls on a query object. If you call order by, it turns that into a series of method internal method calls. Every, that's basically all it does. And there's pretty much no real logic in here, considering it's pretty much finding this huge 1400 line file. Um, and there are all, it also has a few subclasses. So I said it does the transformation of things into the objects. So there are also subclasses that handle values, which don't return models, or value lists as well. They return uh, dictionaries and tuples instead of uh, objects. So they get a subclass, same with dates. So the real meat of all the logic, mostly, happens in a class called query. And query is basically a big basket that carries around the complete state of what you've said. So every filter call, every order by, every values call, these are all turned into sort of different data structures that are stored internally and that are just sort of kept around until it's time to actually produce SQL or whatever. So the query is backend specific in, the se in sort of a larger sense. So this, the queries that are included in uh, Django work exclusively with SQL backends. So, but there's only one for Oracle, for Postgres, for MySQL. They all share one query class. But if someone were to write a Google App Engine or some other database that doesn't use SQL, doesn't use the SQL model, it would need its own custom query class because it wants to store data in different forms. So, for example, the query class does deal with things like joins. When you add a filter that's on a, a related model, it will handle figuring out what the join table is, how it needs, what aliases to use, everything like that. And it, it used to actually do the generation of SQL itself, and now, we do, now it no longer does that. There's a new class that sort of handles that level of abstraction for reasons that I will get into. And so here is sort of an overview of every single thing that is stored on a query class. It is a huge, there's, there's more. It is an absolutely huge amount of stuff, and pretty much whatever, if, if you ever look at this class, you'll see that each, uh, data structure can pretty much be viewed independently of the others. So it, it, you store things like the, what you've used in an extra method, at the ex, what you want to select there, or an extra order by. All this stuff is pretty much uh, completely independent of each other. So like I said, it's, it's a lot of stuff there. Um, so like I said, there's a ton of stuff, but there's sort of a few points of the API that are kind of self-explanatory. So the first one is self.where and self.having. These are basically tree structures that represent the sort of what you want. They store either complex objects that sort of know how to turn themselves into SQL or just sort of raw this table, this field, or not necessarily a table to be an alias, but this alias, this field, and sort of this exact parameter. Before the multi-database refactoring, if you did something like greater or uh, equals datetime.today, it would actually turn, as soon as you call, made that filter call, it would turn that directly into the SQL. It turns out that even SQL databases can have subtle differences in sort of how they think a date should be represented. So that now uh, a query actually just stores on this field, you know, the field object, and this date time object, there, a lookup will be done later, and later I will convert it into some SQL. It used to be that all that conversion happened right when you did the filter. So other things, self.aggregate sort of carries a mapping around of uh, the aliases you provide to aggregates to an aggregate object. 
Alias map is probably the single most complicated data structure on a query. It stores things, it basically maps aliases to the right hand and left hand side of the join and what type of join, so the exact alias is on each side and the exact fields. Uh, select fields, it's, it knows whether you explicitly ask for all fields, implicitly ask for all fields, or done some sort of restriction. And in terms of interesting method, there's self.getCompiler, which gets a SQL compiler, which is sort of the next level down this rabbit hole. Clone, uh, query sets are lazily evaluated, but if you call a method like filter or order by, it doesn't affect your previous query set. It actually returns a new query set that's different. So clone is necessary to maintain the fact that the previous uh, query is not modified at all. Join provides an API for internal consumption for generating an exact join. Add filter is sort of a high level. It, it's even low, it's, it's still lower than the filter method on a query set, but it's, it's high level in the sense of everything else that's going on here. Add ordering is sort of the same thing. It takes, it's sort of the highest level query has for considering adding a new ordering. And so the question is we've got all this stuff but we, we want to do queries with it. We, we, don't, we don't just want to have a Python representation of these complicated queries. So the question is, how do we take all of this and actually turn it into a query? So the result is a SQL compiler. This was sort of a new introduction with uh, multiple database support. Like I said, it used to be that query classes generated their own SQL. Now the SQL compiler takes a query object in a database, a connection object, and takes both of those and turns it into a SQL and it's also responsible for the execution of this SQL and this is what handles the really back-end stuff. So Postgres and Oracle use a different SQL compiler because they have differences in how they do stuff like limits and probably some other stuff. I don't actually know anything about Oracle. And Django ships two sets of them, one for Oracle and one for pretty much everything else. The external databases like uh, MS SQL, DB2, any SQL, they would all need to define their own SQL compiler in one, two, and above for providing uh, this custom, for just defining the custom database and their behavior. And there are a few uh, different types of SQL compilers. There's one for just regular queries, there's one for deletes, updates, inserts, uh, date queries, and aggregate queries. So these all have uh, different uh, compilers that do different things and are subtly different. And sort of all of these, take this query object and all these data structures that are on it and turn it into actual SQL. And sort of the next level of the rabbit hole is Django.db.backends. And these are just all the different backends that Django ships with. Um, these do things like interoperating with the database drivers, so each one of them knows about PsychoPG2 or uh, MySQLDB, all those things. And they uh, handle a lot of the nuances of uh, the various databases SQL dialects. So for some things, you'll have like uh, the backend provides a callback method uh, to define its own behavior. You tend to see uh, methods like that where the databases have wildly different interpretations of how to do something. But there are also uh, places where um, it just has a single attribute like does the database do this this way, true or false. And uh, all of those I actually I sort of hope will go away because a lot of those are reminiscent of the fact that database backends were really just designed to, for a SQL type interface and there are a lot of people interested in uh, NoSQL uh, 
databases and sort of having a database backend think at the level of SQL I think is already a bit too, uh, too high level, I would say. Um, they also handle the uh, database language for creation uh, and introspection of tables, uh, running the command line shell, and one of the other big changes of uh, multiple database support is that it used to be that if you were using uh, GeoDjango, it sort of just piggybacked on the backends that were already in Django. In uh, Django 1.2, they are now full-fledged database backends. So when you set your engine variable in your settings.py file, it now looks like Django can crib GIS DB backends Postgres. And so now that we have all this uh, stuff, there's, uh, we, we want to put all this information we have about the architecture of the ORM to good use. And so this is the kind of stuff that you'll hopefully be able to take advantage of in your day job. So the first sort of interesting example I think is uh, custom aggregates. So Django comes, since 1.1 has come with quite a few aggregates, uh, average, count, max, main, standard deviation, sum, variance. But it turns out uh, different databases represent different aggregation operations. Those are sort of the stuff that's represented by every database. But a lot of databases have more uh, aggregation functions. It turns out some of them, like PostgreSQL, actually will let you define your own aggregate functions. So aggregates sort of come in two parts. One is the part that uh, stores, you know, what field are you aggregating on, any custom parameters, uh, basically all the data about it. And the other part is the part that turns an aggregate into SQL. So this sort of pattern is hopefully starting to sound familiar. Sort of since multiple database support, everything is divided between what we want to do and how it will actually be executed. So part one of implementing this is you subclass uh, this aggregate object and it defines an add to query method. The aggregates, are, for most aggregates, this sort of data carrier is really dumb. It just carries around a single field and says, you know, you're gonna do this aggregation on this field. Some of them, like count, can take an optional parameter like distinct, and sort of all that's automatically handled for you, um, taking extra parameters. So basically what add to query just needs to do is it just needs to get you your backend class, this SQL generating class, and add it to the aggregates dictionary that I mentioned on the query class. Um, Django's inter the reason you have to do this sort, of, this sort of manual way is Django's internal aggregates all work based on the fact that uh, an aggregate in this database agnostic aggregates module maps one-to-one -to, -one to an aggregate in the SQL aggregates module. And so you just need to tell, basically the point of this is to tell Django, where does my class live? And in terms of generating the SQL, it's, it's pretty simple. It takes a SQL template, which knows about the field, the function, and any custom parameters. So it just works on the basis of string interpolation. So you get your function, your field, and any sort of custom parameters you have will also be available to you. And you define your SQL function, and there's uh, Two, uh, two optional parameters is ordinal and I can't remember the other one, but basically it's defined should it be assumed that this is gonna return an integer or a float value. And you can also, uh, if this is sort of too high level for you, you wanna do something really complicated, you can override the as SQL method and that will let you sort of define completely, generate whatever SQL you sort of wanna do. Uh, one of the big problems with abstract this abstraction is you can't actually uh, really do aggregates on non-integer val or non-numeric values. 
So one of the goals to teach was sort of making it easy for aggregates to operate over dates and strings and sort of making sure it's easy for you to expose whatever data types you need to aggregation. So the next thing is automatic caching. So sort of probably how many people have had to write some sort of caching for their application? Right, so a few. So operations are taking too long, you're doing too many queries, you, you want to write some sort of caching to make it go faster. And so sort of the easiest way to do this in terms of long-term maintainability of your application, in my opinion, is to automate it. So this is a strategy that's used by a couple websites, The Onion, Moki Media, Pounce, they all sort of use this automatic caching strategy. And so the place to start is doing a single object cache. So for most people, probably a lot of the easiest queries to cache in your application are uh, gets by primary key or gets, gets by a field that's known to be unique, like a slug or something like that. So, like I said, these queries pop up a lot. Like every single time you traverse a foreign key, you're going to be executing a query like this. So, we want to sort of automate the process of doing caching on these fields. And we also want to make sure uh, invalidation is handled for us. We, we don't want to have to think about polluting all of our sort of complex business logic with extra queries. So, oh, we added, uh, we added a lookup here because we wanted to, to do more complicated logic for our client. Oh, now we have to think about what else do we have to invalidate. We want to sort of make sure our applications can continue to be written in a way that's sort of sane and easy to maintain the level of flexibility that Django gives us. So the, sort of the tools of trade is sort of all these building blocks we've looked at before as well as signals. And I don't know if you can see that well. It's supposed to be like a tower, like a signal tower. So sort of the level we start at, we started a query set. Query sets are where we do these get operations. So we define our own query set method. So uh, we override the get method on the query set. So it takes any sort of arguments or keyword arguments. So the first thing we want to check for is that we have uh, exactly one keyword argument and that we haven't done any further uh, querying on our query set. So if we have something like uh, query set dot filter some parameter dot get primary key equals three, we can't be sure that the object we return, even if we know it as primary key three, we don't want to have to deal with, do these other conditions actually match it? So we sort of punt on any sort of query like that, especially since in my experience, those don't tend to show up so frequently. So the next step is we make sure we're filtering on just a primary key or uh, whatever the name of the primary key is. And, and if not, we just sort of bail out. It's possible to extend this to look at custom other fields. So maybe you have a slug, or maybe you have some other interesting field that's known to be unique. Uh, for now, we just handle primary keys. Next, we generate a cache key, which is based on the application level, the object name, and whatever this primary key field we're doing a lookup on is. If we wanted to extend this to other fields, we probably want to also include the field name in this query. Uh, and then we just check our cache for this key. If we get a value back, we return it. Otherwise, we execute the query, put it in the cache, and return. Sort of, so now the next step is to expose this to our actual manager. So we create a caching manager, and uh, we, we sort of, like I said, the get query set method is a gateway to this rabbit hole. Instead of returning a regular query set, now we're returning a caching query set. We also define this use for related fields equals true attribute. Uh, in, before 1.0, one of the problems was you define a custom manager like, um, like a return only published articles, and then you'd, uh, you'd use it to cross a related manager, so you get like tag dot, 
tag.posts.all, and you'd be missing objects. If, or you, more importantly, you try to traverse a foreign key. So you do like user.userprofile, and if the default user profile wasn't uh, a bit ex exposed in the manager, it'd, it'd disappear from you. You'd get like a does not exist op exception, which is sort of surprising behavior. But we, we want to maintain this caching across uh, related objects. That's like half the point, really. So we definitely want to do it. And the other thing is this contribute to class method. When uh, Django ha has this meta class that turns all these attributes on a query set, like name equals models.care field, all this stuff. And so Django looks for this method named contribute to class, class on these things. And they're sort of expected to attach themselves onto the class however is appropriate for them to do so. So fields stick themselves in the right place, managers stick themselves in the right place, uh, the meta class that sort of defines all these high level uh, uh, metadata about our classes, it sticks itself in the appropriate place. And so all we need to do here is uh, call, oops, that's it's subclassing query set, that really should be subclassing manager. Um, but all we need to do here is make sure our manager gets attached to uh, the class in the its normal way, so we call the parent method. And then we want to register two signals, pre-save and pre-delete on invalidate cache. And we want to provide this invalidate cache method so that we can uh, invalidate our cache whenever there's a save or a delete. Uh, this won't handle things like if you use the bulk update method on a query set, there's no good uh, signal to hook into in those places. So those are sort of one place where this abstraction falls flat and you do need to worry about handling your own invalidation. But uh, that's sort of a, one of those query sets, an update query set, you don't have an actual object. By definition, you're doing some sort of bulk operation. So that is something you sort of need to handle yourself. And so the next step is we, we just uh, define this invalidate cache method. We generate the same cache key and we just delete it from the cache. One thing you may have noticed, we were using the pre-save and pre-delete methods as opposed to the post-save and post-delete methods. The reason is after, we want to make sure there's no time when our cache has invalid data in it. And if we wait till after the object is already saved, there's already a chance for uh, somebody to, uh, in the time between going to save the object, you know, knowing, we know this data is about to become invalid and this data is invalid, there's a chance for someone to do a query and come get data that's already invalid. And on a delete, an object doesn't have a primary, and Django removes the primary key of an object after it's deleted. So we definitely want to make sure we do the deletion before uh, Django deletes that. And so, questions on anything? Yeah, um, for the, um, you said you hook in the pre-delete, is it possible that when you save and there's an error, um, it's a validation error, that you're gonna store cached data? You're going to cache any proper data? Uh, no, because even in a pre-save, we don't, we don't actually reset the data in the cache for exactly that reason. Our database could uh, have a transactional error. We could violate some sort of constraint. We don't know what's going to happen when it saves. So we make sure that you know, we don't attempt to reset the data sort of speculatively. We just wait for someone to do another query. Other questions? In the Postgres backend, uh, when it goes to transactional error, mm -hmm. I'm just asking, it's not specifically like probably not. Is when it goes to transactional error, it, it leaves transaction open, so even if you 
Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think that's sort of the fault behavior for the Postgres uh, backend, and Django doesn't play with that. It might be possible to sort of poke at the uh, Postgres uh, intern, sort of the, what some API it exposes to change that behavior, or it might be that Django's uh, transaction decorators and methods already provide some hook for uh, changing that behavior. I, I don't know off the top of my head. John. So that's kind of just a practical matter. Uh, so MultiDB was mentored by uh, Russell Keith McGee, who is uh, another one of the Django Cool Committers who does a lot of work in the uh, ORM. And sort of the best way to learn about this stuff is sort of pale, uh, peel back the layers of the onion. So you start you looking at the manager. It doesn't really do a whole lot of its own thing. Uh, then look at the, uh, so maybe take a hypothetical query. So model.objects.filter name equals foobar and sort of see, okay, manager calls this method on query set, and then query set calls these methods on query, and sort of tracing down manually, or using some sort of automated tool, just sort of looking at what the method calls are, what the state of the query object is, what attributes are being assigned to, what data structures are being adjusted, sort of just continually looking down to see how each of these operations are performed. Uh, so it's quite a lesson. Uh, no, it's uh, just something I, I wrote up. Uh, it's, it's not included anywhere in Django. Uh, Mike Malone, who works at Pounce, has a project on GitHub called Django Caching, which uh, shows an example of some pretty similar logic. Um, be, even though it's generic, I would say it implies a certain, it's a, type, it's a caching strategy you would have to adopt internally and the issues with things like bulk update. So uh, I think J Django really tries to get out of your way in terms of defining what your strategies for solving problems are. And like uh, there's been a few other projects that were announced recently, Johnny Cash and another one whose name escapes me. It's sort of each of these define a different sort of general strategy for doing caching, and Django just doesn't want to take a position there. All right, thank you very much. Uh, I'll put the slides on the slide share. I don't know if you can. Yeah, okay.